king of the swingers, oh, the jungle VIP. You're moving into a land of both absurdity and ridiculousness, of opinions and garbage takes you've just crossed over into Mouse Madness. Hello and welcome, you're listening to Mouse Madness, a podcast dedicated to bracketing all things Disney. I'm Chris Bowersox. And I'm Kyle Skinner. And we are your hosts for Mouse Madness. Each episode will focus on a single Disney topic, generate a bracket, and debate our way through the madness to figure out who or what is truly the best. Follow us and play along on Twitter at Mouse Madness Pod, or send us an email at mousemadnesspodcast at gmail.com. Chris, it's October. We've made it to October. We're getting into the you know spooky season. We're going to start talking a little bit about some maybe some creepy topics for this month. Uh, And this is the first one that is a non-Disney topic for us. It's kind of, you know, Disney adjacent in a way, um, but it's something that we both love. Yeah, there are certainly some Disney tie-ins that we'll talk about, but it's going to be best Twilight Zone episodes. Mm -hmm. And it's something that you and me are both huge fans of, so we're both extremely excited about it. We hope our listeners are too. And to help us out, we've got another huge Twilight Zone fan Last week, we had Kyle's brother on. This week, we got my brother, Matt. What's going on, Matt? Hey, what's up, guys? Thanks for having me on. Well, we're happy to have you here because we know you love Twilight Zone so much. Talk to us a little bit about your history with this show. Boy, going back to when we were both young, we always have the uh, Twilight Zone chain reactions on, on the uh, Sci-Fi channel. Uh, (laughs) Fourth of July, Memorial Day. I don't know. They'd have they'd have them all the time, like all the holidays, and we'd all you know sit around and check that out. I remember one Fourth uh, of July, we like just came home from fireworks, and our dad was like, "Oh, Nightmare Twenty Thousand Feet just came on, just came on!" <laughs> like we like we like we like ran in. We were so excited because uh, it was just like a classic uh, classic episode, and um, we like to that East Ventura movie and there's like a reference to that. And I don't know, we just were like really into that episode in particular. Um, yeah. And, and we also had the Twilight Zone movie on repeat as well. The, yeah. the lesser known Twilight Zone movie. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. We had a, I bought a DVD too. It was like a, it was, there was like four episodes on it. It was actually like a really legit. Oh DVD. Yeah, yeah. It had, um, it had, Odyssey of Flight 33, uh, Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, and uh, Time Enough at Last. And that was like mm. an awesome four-episode like, yeah, mm. DVD. And then after I got my first job with my first paycheck, first thing I bought was a pair of Ray-Bans. And the second thing <laughs> I bought was – the second, <laughs> this, was, this, was like, this was like in 2008, so – that was popular back then, but uh, I bought the complete series on DVD oh, off of Amazon, yes. and it was like three hundred and fifty bucks or something. I remember, <laughs> and it was like my whole paycheck almost, except for the Ray Bans. Uh, but I was so stoked to uh, to get that. It was just like one of the first things I bought with like money I earned. So yes, God, what a great way to spend it. Have you? dabbled into any of the the newer ones uh i know like forrest whitaker hosted a new twilight zone in the thousands and then now we have jordan peels uh that's over on cbs all access have you dabbled in any of the the newer kind of revamped twilight zones 
You know, I have not. Um, I my so for me, time is very short uh, <laughs> on sh- on shorthand these days uh, with my job. So it's been a little tricky to uh, you know stream uh, series and stuff. But I mean, Jordan Peele is awesome, and uh, I definitely think he's got probably got some creative stories to to bring into the home. So I got to check that right. out. I highly recommend, highly recommend Jordan Peele's. It's really good. It's really good. It's it's what we think about Twilight Zone. We'll dive a little bit more into what we see as good Twilight Zone, but it's very, you know, tackling current day topics, but throwing it into a different dimension. And he does a great job at it. But, you know, before we hop into that, Chris, we got to talk a little bit of Spoonful of Sugar, as we always do. What have you got in your cup over there? If y'all remember, in our decom bracket, I had the TV Party Ale. Uh, it's a New England-style pale ale from Radiant Pig. I, I, st- I had a few left over in the back of my refrigerator. They're little little humans with TV heads, and <laughs> they have these little like black and white lines on them that look super Twilight zone oh, yeah. So I was like, yo, I got to <laughs> kill these for this Twilight Zone episode because these people are definitely living in the Twilight Zone <laughs> yeah. right now. Look at that. This is like, there's no gravity. Yeah. They got black and white TV heads. Kyle, what do you got? I'm back on the rum game, ladies and gentlemen. It is back. I've recovered from our Pirates episode, and I'm ready to hop back into it. (laughs) So I I talked a little bit about last week how I was going to get back into the Tiki game, and here I am. So what I'm drinking right now is fresh out of the Smuggler's Cove Tiki cocktail recipe book. And it's called Don's Own Grog. And this is an aggressive drink, so this might take me a little bit to get through this uh, this recipe. But it's three-fourths ounce of lime juice, fourth of an ounce of Demerara syrup, a dash of grenadine, half an ounce of uh, blackberry liqueur, Ooh. an ounce of aged rum. Here we go. A half an ounce of blended lightly aged rum, a half an ounce of black blended rum, <laughs> and a dash of... Angostura bitters. Um, I threw it into a Trader Sam's shrunken zombie head uh, zombie, mug, yeah, uh, and it's delicious. It tastes like a grog, which is just every <laughs> rum that you can find in a cabinet and throw it in there. I actually like uh, instacarted all of the rums from Bevmo, and the guy just showed up with uh, all the rums, just all, all the, rums. the rums that oh, he could find from Bevmo, uh, and it's a delicious drink. I highly recommend it. We'll see if I can hang out until the very end of this episode because it's pretty strong. Matt, what you got in your cup over there? Oh, my wife made me actually a tequila drink, and uh, we don't drink yes, we don't drink a lot of tequila. But one of the uh, restaurants uh, during the lockdown was offering some like package, and they they threw in like a handle of tequila, like if we went there for tacos (laughs) or whatever. So that was in our cabinet. but we also last week went uh, over to Michigan uh, for a little fall adventure and um, did some apple picking, some pumpkin patch, and we brought home some some cider. So she mixed me up a little apple cider uh, with some tequila and some lime and some bitters. Oh. Uh, and I'm calling this one uh, a dimension of lime. I like that. Oh yeah, like there it is. Lot. Yeah, it's uh, you know the the Bowersox family has shown that agave is in your blood apparently because uh, <laughs> I don't know where it came I don't, from. I don't know how that I don't know how that happened. Yeah. <laughs> I love it, guys. I love it. 
Okay, well, with this episode, we, of course, need a demographic to survey. We had to be a little bit strategic for this one because we know not everyone is a huge Twilight Zone fan, so we kind of had to choose our demographic very specifically. So for this bracket, we chose people watching the flag retreat ceremony on Main Street at the Magic Kingdom. I mean, this is something I generally don't partake in during a day at Disneyland, but it's something people do, mostly uh, people of the elderly community, people who maybe have served uh, in the armed forces. And that's really appropriate for Twilight Zone because it's an old show. Uh, It deals a lot with uh, American values in the 50s, 60s, consumerism, that kind of stuff. I mean, it makes sense, especially with, uh, you know, veterans of that era watching the flag retreat because a lot of these episodes deal with you know war themes whether it's as a civilian or literal soldiers and we'll dive into that as we talk about it but these uh these folks watching the flag retreat which i have also never done i don't think that i would have known that this happens had it not been for like my kind of parks fandom and just, you know, wanting to learn more about the history of the parks and stuff and learning that they do this. And then recently the Disneyland resort got rid of the guy who like used to host the flag retreat every single day and moved it to a recording instead of a live human on a mic. And there was a lot of controversy around it. And I think that's the first time I was like, people stop at like four o'clock in the afternoon to go to, watch the flag leave it's but whatever thing. so so of course we could only get 16 this has this bracket deals with the original twilight series which was five seasons worth of twilight zone episodes and each season hovered from 20 to almost 40 episodes so there's a lot uh that made it into the bracket but there's a ton that didn't so we're going to talk a little bit about the miss the dance chris what were a few that missed the dance for you This one was really tough. I mean, there are so many great episodes of The Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. Not surprised that there are some great ones that didn't quite make the list. One of them for me is Five Characters in Search of an Exit, which is, I believe, a short one-act play written by a person that was not a writer for The Twilight Zone. They kind of adapted it for the show. Um, Just before we go any further... (laughs) Spoilers for all Twilight Zone episodes. Yes, seriously. <laughs> I would recommend you go watch the Twilight Zone. <laughs> but um, five characters, great. Uh, a lot of interpersonal drama, exploration into characters. Uh, they're in kind of a, a pressure cooker of sorts. And it turns out they're all toys in a toy bin. Really, really <laughs> cool. The obsolete man. Very intense. Uh, it's about this dictatorship that summons a man who they deem to be obsolete because he's a librarian. Uh, and it's about this little guy trying to stand up for himself, almost to make the argument that, like, whose job is it to define the value of a life? And you have this dictator character who's who's sentencing him to be executed because they believe he's a, a waste of human life. Super intense. But uh, that's that's often the Twilight Zone. Kyle, what do you got on Miss the Dance? So I have one. There's so many that did, but this one really stuck in my mind, and it's called The Invaders. This is season two, episode 15. Uh, it's about this like this lady living in this shack out in the country, and essentially like she's being stalked by this 
very tiny flying saucer and it's actually kind of comical when you first see it because it's like what what is happening and why is she so afraid it looks silly um but then there's like this little like toy two toy robots that like hop out and eventually uh just terrorize her entire <laughs> night um she tries to fight them off and and eventually blows up their ship um but it's not like this is one of those open-ended episodes where it kind of just leaves you with like you don't know who these invaders were where they came from why they were there you just knew that they were here to terrorize <laughs> and they did to this lady stuck in my mind because it's just one of those like you know really thriller episodes where you just never know what's happening next and i really like that about a lot of the twilight zone episodes so my one is the invaders matt what are a few for you uh i mean there's so many good ones uh, you know five seasons i mean there's you know over a hundred some odd episodes of this show and all of them are so unique uh there are some that you know kind of have themes like we were mentioning earlier uh one of my favorite ones uh dealing with airplanes um was odyssey of flight 33 um and you know obviously this is science fiction um so there's a little bit of a technical aspect with this episode and they kind of I don't know, speed off into, I don't know, must be some kind of wormhole or something like that. And, and they're transported, um, back in time. And, uh, they're like radioing the, uh, I think they were trying to like land a JFK or something like that. And they were like, this is Idlewild airport or, or something like that. And they were like, <laughs> you know, what? This is, <laughs> so that was kind of like their first hint that like something went wrong and, uh, they have to like try to get back, but they actually, go way too far back and they see like dinosaurs and they're just kind of like lost, <laughs> lost yeah, then. It's, right. it's, it's one of those weird like things where if you ever like take off in an airplane, like, you know, what if things don't look the same when I land or like, what if I land somewhere where, you know, I'm not supposed to land? Uh, it's kind of like plays off of fear of that, I think. Um, and then another one that's like really a classic is it's a good life, uh, which is, you mm-hmm. know, that kid who's, he's got like, uh, psychic powers and uh, sending these people to this cornfield and turning people into Jack in the box. And it's really, <laughs> right. Really like creepy and disturbing. And I mean, I feel like that predates a lot of movies where like kids were first thought of as could be creepy. Um, yeah. And it's also, it's also uh, an episode that was featured in the twilight zone movie too. So I feel like it's kind of one of those classic one of those classic. Oh, and also a uh, little trivia. I believe the intro of this episode was used on the Tower of Terror intro. Right. They pulled yep. that footage for that, I believe. Yeah. The so. this is a he says uh, this is a, a what you're seeing is a and then it cuts and they say maintenance elevator, but he continues to say map. So it yeah, looks map like of the United States. Right. Yeah. Yep. 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 And. Uh, yeah you're right it's it's, that's the tie (laughs) there's the tie into the episode those are great ones I mean like I said there's so many in this catalog and we're not even talking about any of the reboots and I think that uh, if we were to all watch the Jordan Peele ones a few would sprinkle in here but we're talking about the original series five seasons of the Twilight Zone and we have a bracket of 16 to announce all right Y'all, we got to get into our bracket of 16. 
let's go ahead and announce them. But first, we got to cue that dramatic music. Coming in at number one, it's a cookbook to serve man. Coming in at number two, the monsters are due on Maple Street. There's time for our number three seed, time enough at last. Hope your carry-on is secure because coming in at number four, it's Nightmare at 20,000 feet. Might need a bandage for the number five seed, Eye of the Beholder. If you thought Gab and Gabby was bad, wait till you get a load of Talking Tina. Coming in at number six, it's Living Doll. Slim Shady who? Coming in at number seven, will the real Martian please stand up? Have you ever... <laughs> Have you ever had a napkin holder tell your future? Coming in at the number eight seed, it's Nick of Time. Rent's due for the number nine seed, Caesar and Me. If you love awful dubs, this episode is for you. Coming in at number 10, it's The Bewitching Pool. <laughs> oh my God. I can't wait to talk about it. I can't oh wait. Oh my God. God, it's so right. weird. The clock's about to strike midnight for the number 11 seed, The Masks. What up, man? All stop for Willoughby! <laughs> Coming in at the number 12 seed, it's a stop at Willoughby. Might need an ibuprofen for the number 13 seed, stop over in a quiet town. This is probably the episode that I would hate to live in. Coming in at number 14, a penny for your thoughts. Swim like no one's watching. Coming in at number 15, an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Our boy saw the sign. Coming in at number 16, it's the Purple Testament. All right, well, we got our 16. Matt, how do you feel about this seating? How do you feel about the ones that made the cut? I feel like it's only the three of us that are going to understand the jokes in that intro. <laughs> um, no, I mean, the, boy, the top, the top seeds here are, I mean, this is, it's stacked. A lot of these episodes... You know, in my mind, they're like seven or eight out of tens. And so, like, kind of towards those bottom seeds, you could have swapped them out with, like, literally anything. But uh, I totally. definitely think that uh, I definitely think that the top seeds are pretty uh, – they're going to make a run. It's going to be hard to unseed them. But we'll see. It'll be exciting to talk about it. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get right into business Starting with our first matchup, the number one seed to serve man versus number 16, the Purple Testament. I'm not surprised at all, guys, that to serve man is number one. This I, is I agree. this is a super memorable episode. I think when a lot of people think of Twilight Zone, they think of science fiction and they think of a crazy twist ending. And this episode really has strong elements of both of those. You've got an actual alien with a big head and a robe and coming from another planet who flies That's an like actual eight feet tall. Yeah, he flies an actual spaceship. I mean, this has got like that science fiction imagery everywhere. And Believe it or not, like that's not a huge aspect of a lot of Twilight Zone episodes, but for this one, it's it's really laid on thick. Like I said, it's got that twist ending to serve man as a cookbook. Got a great memorable line associated with it as well. The uh, I think she's an assistant. She's uh, the code breaker, and before Chambers gets on the spaceship, she says to serve man. 
it's a cookbook. And then they <laughs> shove him onto the airplane. And, and then there he goes. He's gone. Um, love when they're like weighing people getting on the the ufo ship they're like no one everyone's fine everyone's like oh <laughs> they weigh like a big guy and it goes up to like <laughs> two something pounds and the alien's like mm, yeah <laughs> guy, you, you gonna be tasty <laughs> thicky boy um something that i think is really important to a lot of good Twilight Zone episodes is that it's kind of a mirror of society and a mirror of yes. the human condition. It reveals truths about how we might behave in a situation or how society as a whole behaves in a situation. And sadly, I think To Serve Man falls a little bit short in that regard because hmm. you have these aliens coming down to Earth. How might society react to them? Probably with high doses of xenophobia and people rejecting them. And they kind of like introduced that with the Soviet guy at the UN being like, how are we supposed to know that like you're here to help us or whatever? And I think that treatment feels a little bit more realistic. So seeing all of the humans just kind of go along with it, like they are here to help us feels a little bit unreal. Like I feel like they would be a little bit more skeptical. So if I was going to rewrite the episode, I might, do something like that where like they are, they are there to help everyone, but society like refuses their help. Uh, it might be a little bit more tragic than just them wanting to eat people. And this is cannibals. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think called... that they were, I, I think that they were skeptical though. They, 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 um, they gave them the, um, lie detector test. Yes. Too. Yes, they did. I mean, mm-hmm. I think there was yep. some skepticism there, but, they brought so many gifts to the earth. Yeah, they brought uh, nutrients for the arid soil in Argentina. They were like, we're going to feed everyone. <laughs> they and, like, put invisible walls. Something. Yeah, they put yeah, like, like shield shielding. generators up. I don't right. understand how that works. All right. So like, can, can people not like walk between countries anymore? Or... <laughs> they, I, I don't know the feasibility of that plan. Um, in the end, this is a, a really fun episode still. I mean, it's, it's an easy watch at times though. I feel like it maybe bites off a little bit more than it can chew. It might be better served as one of those one hour episodes or maybe even like a feature length wow. film. The purple Testament. Um, really glad we got a war episode on here because there are a lot of war set episodes this one has dick york in it the incomparable dick york we've got two dick york <laughs> episodes on this bracket i believe this was pre-bewitched <laughs> dick york um but this episode's not about war it's kind of more of like an inner conflict set in the backdrop of war this is like a a, a curse episode there's the main character fits has this curse where he can see the look in his platoon mates faces on the day that they're going to die so he can he can predict their death accurately and so it's like his dilemma and watching him like the moral weight that he has on his shoulders like do i tell this person they're gonna die or uh in the end he sees his own reflection and he has the the glow in his face so he knows he's gonna die does he stop himself does he just let it happen there's like a whole fate versus free will discussion to be had after watching an episode like this 
to me, that's really, really classic Twilight Zone. Um, a really intimate character piece, a, a one-act play of sorts that opens up a dialogue on life and, and decisions people might make in life in uncertain, challenging, morally ambiguous situations. Really, really hard for me to unseat to serve man here. But I'm going to do it anyway. I got the Purple God. Testament 16 seed upsetting to serve man. Oh, man. My boy Dick Came in York. with an agenda. I came, came in, in hot. With an agenda. I came in hot. Yeah. I'm doing it. Yeah, you wanted some chaos. Uh, I, it's funny that you bring up that uh, serve man should be like the longer episode or you you think it bit off more than it can chew its sequel is in season two of uh uh jordan peele's twilight zone ah. which is super interesting and you don't learn that until the end of that episode um, but it was such a great callback jordan does a lot of really great callbacks to the original series um and that was one of them and it's phenomenal uh i don't know that i agree with you unseating the top here because I think that when I think of Twilight Zone a lot is it doesn't always have to deal with like aliens it does deal with inner conflict but I also think it it reflects society in that moment in time and I think in the 50s and 60s there was this mistrust of government and I think Rod especially was like yo like Vietnam is a scam we shouldn't be doing any of this um why are we trusting government officials? And this was an episode to bring that to light. The UN decides that like these like aliens that we have no idea about are chill and they're only for good and we're going to allow them to do whatever they want. They're going to let us go visit their country or their planet and everything is going to be awesome. Uh, and I think that Rod was not a, a human of, you know, belief that government's always there for the good of the people. And this was one of those episodes. And I think that a lot of the counterculture in the 60s reflected that, you know, like people did not trust the government during yeah. the 60s. And yeah. this was one of those episodes. Um, so I really like that about the Twilight Zone in general. It's never like an outlandish idea. Sometimes it is, but they always there's some sort of sprinkle of like reality or in the back of your mind, you can relate it back to something happening in current day. So I really like that about it. I'm not a huge like war fan when it comes to consuming media. So anything that even takes place in the backdrop of war, I have an issue with like tuning in or tuning out. It's it's difficult for me. I really liked this episode, um, The Purple Testament, because it didn't we didn't have to go to war with this guy. Like he's at war with him, his own feelings, his own you know, uh, moral dilemmas of letting these people know if they should die or not. This is also a theme of like uh, one singular human knowing more than everybody else, but no one else believing his premonitions. We see that a ton yep. in these Twilight Zone episodes. Um, I don't know that this is the best of those. I think that there's a few coming up that we can talk sure, about that sure. might be a little bit better than this one. Um, and for that alone and the the what I like so much about to serve man and its reflection on uh, on society as well as the plot twist. Love a good plot twist in Twilight Zone where the reveal is this big shocking moment. And the first time watching this, I didn't I don't it never connected to me that this was 
they're you know fattening up people to bring them up to <laughs> space to eat them never really connected to me i was trying to figure out like what the hidden agenda of these aliens were and it was never a cookbook so um yeah i'm gonna move the top seed on here past purple testament which means we're gonna have a tie break in the first round sweet um do you guys know where this where that episode title came from did you research that at all the purple testament I, they they quoted it. They quote it during the episode. I think it's Wordsworth. It's a, a poem. I, I I found it here. It is a quote from Shakespeare's Richard II. Oh, wow. He says, Tell Bolingbroke for yon methinks he stands that every stride he makes upon my land is dangerous treason. He has come to open the Purple Testament of Bleeding War. Mm. No idea what that means, but <laughs> it's Shakespeare. All right. That's cool. Yeah, so so he, so the interesting thing about Rod Serling is that he, and a lot of people from his generation, they served in World War II. And I think he was like a paratrooper in the Philippines. Um, and so, I mean, that was some nasty fighting. And um one thing that uh, I remember from college was one of my professors of, it was actually like this history of rock and roll class. And he also taught this other class on Bob Dylan, who <laughs> I really like. So I took this class and it was the same professor. And he's like, he was like an old baby boomer guy. And he's like, you guys know where we first heard about the Vietnam War? And no one knew the answer. And he said it was from an episode of the Twilight Zone. It's called In Praise of Pip which is like, I think, one of the first episodes of season five. And it aired in 1963, even before Kennedy was assassinated. And so I think there is a lot of uh, influence um, that this show had on, you know, pop culture and, uh, you know, depicting war and kind of, you know, the, the morality of war. And so I definitely appreciate um, that, and that's, I don't know what percentage of episodes to pick war, but it seems like it's at least, you know, 10%, 10 to 15% at least. Totally. But to me, to serve man is, you know, I, I always associate the twilight zone with, with that, you know, kind of classic twist ending that is, has been built up. And so for me, I had to move, uh, to serve man on here. Rest in peace, Fitzy. Right. Rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's go ahead and move on to the next matchup. It's number eight, Nick of Time. First, number nine, Caesar and Me. Uh, Nick of Time was one that I remember watching when I was in, I think, middle school and just being fascinated by it because I've always haven't had an issue with superstition. And it's funny that I have because at the time of this recording, the Oakland A's just moved on to the American League Divisional Series for the first time since 2006. They've won a playoff series. And I was so superstitious and the folks that I was working with were so superstitious that I wore the same exact suit from the win before to the next game in hopes of a win. When the A's rallied, I was in a certain position doing a certain thing, which was eating jalapeno chips standing <laughs> up. And 
our uh my my boss essentially told me i could not move and i needed to find more jalapeno chips and i needed <laughs> to sit there and continue to eat them and it was this kind of thing that i remembered this this podcast was coming up and i remember watching nick of time again uh for the umpteenth time and still discounting superstition but then here i am partaking in it and and making it feel like it's a real thing and sometimes it can be i mean we're creatures of habit at the end of the day and so if we think that something worked the first time we're going to continue to do it and nick of time is a journey that i think that we can kind of relate to except this fool is extreme so there it's a couple that whose cars break down in the small town america a lot of episodes take place in small town america because i think that what makes twilight zone so great is that it's it's supposed to be relatable. Some episodes are in the big city. Some episodes are in small town. There's something for everybody and we can all relate. And this is one of them. They're on a road trip. The the homeboy is like waiting to hear about a promotion. They break down in this town. They're going to get it fixed. It's going to be fine. Stop in a diner. The diner has this little fortune teller napkin holder uh, that answers yes or no questions. And uh, they explore it. You kind of get set up that these... Uh, this couple is very superstitious to begin with. Uh, they carry like a four-leaf clover or like a rabbit's tail keychain with them. Um, they're they're very much engaged in it. More so the the uh, boyfriend or the fiance than it is the wife or future wife. My man just can't stop hitting the <laughs> the bottle that is this napkin holder, and he's tearing apart his relationship in the process. And it's you know, obviously it feels very much in a, a, a commentary on addiction in general yes. and how it affects others around you and not just like you and how absurd it looks uh, that he's addicted to this napkin holder when addiction looks that absurd to others on the outside, to folks that are partaking in whatever the addiction is. Yeah. Um, and we see it more of this later on in this. There's a an episode that's strictly a PSA about not drinking and driving like there's <laughs> yep. there's a ton of this kind of commentary and i like it i think it's a great way and it's kind of what you know chris you and i work in this world which we're trying to pair entertainment as well as being good citizens or good members of our own communities in baseball or wherever we're working in this was a one of those episodes to me um so he's very superstitious I think the audience feels like the entire time that this is just a waste of time and like he needs to just let go and just move on. And it turns out at the end, that's what he needed to do. He needed to end this addiction. It's not worth, you know, finding out about the future and risking staying there forever or risking, you know, essentially life moving forward. And so they leave and they're able to actually leave. And we see another couple enter the diner uh, to come back to this napkin holder and they ask like is today a day that we can leave and the napkin holder essentially says like no you like ask me again tomorrow and they're stuck in this addic addiction cycle i really liked it um this is one of also the twilight zone has a lot of great cheesy acting moments and there's a lot of, in this specific episode 
uh, they're crossing the street and he like dramatically throws the girl <laughs> across the street to avoid an oncoming car. Okay, first of and all, like- the guy is talking for like five minutes about how they got to be super careful because uh, they might die. And he sees a giant garbage truck coming and he goes, oh, we can make it. He in front of it. It's like, uh, yes, well, we, we can make it. <laughs> you be like, well, no. And the recovery time from that moment spanned a good two and a half minutes. Like we needed to like make sure she was good. We sat in a park for a little bit, making sure everybody was fine because he decided to take this risk. Um, And I mean, at the end of the day, you make your own destiny, right? You can't sit there and let others decide or let anything else decide what you control. And he was letting that happen. And then he let he took control of his own destiny. I really like that. Other side, Caesar and me, I really liked this one. Uh, I called it the little hype man that could uh, because it was, you know, the this is the dummy episode. This is the the one that, you know, helped to inspire with. Uh, I kind of hinted at it in my intros, but uh, Toy Story 4 has a lot of Twilight Zone references in the uh the like antique shop, the thrift store yep. with Gab and Gabby and the the dummies that accompany her as her like uh Benson. Uh, yeah, 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 Benson. Uh, as her like security force. Um they're dressed as exactly like the dummy in this Caesar and Me episode. Uh, and Gab and Gabby is talking Tina. Like it's it's the same type of thing. But anyway, so the dummy is we have a really, really sad man who just doesn't have a job and he's a ventriloquist and the dummy is taking over, really making the decisions for him. And uh, at, at first I was thinking, you know, like, is are we dealing with like somebody with schizophrenia? Is this somebody who's enacting his thoughts through this dummy? But you also see a ton of paranormal stuff where like the dummy's talking to him, like literally moving and you're like, oh, figment of his imagination. But then the dummy talks to the little girl and it's like, nah, we actually in the Twilight Zone. Like, this is just something that can't be explained. I really like that. Uh, Chris, we have a, a little bit of a Mary Poppins crossover in this episode. Just a bit. Uh, just a bit. They tell the same exact joke that they tell in the, the floating room <laughs> laughing portion of Mary Poppins about the Wouldn't man with a leg named yeah. Smith. <laughs> What's the name of his other leg? I love that joke. I love that joke. Yeah, I picked up on that. Yeah. So uh, if we're talking about why we're even talking about Twilight Zone, a little Mary Poppins there's in there. One, there's uh, one. We, a little bit of a stretch. This is a tough one for me because it does deal with like something that is a prevalent issue, addiction, uh, and then also the Twilight Zone weirdness of a, a talking dummy and like this, uh, you know, spiritual weird like what what ha- is happening phenomenon. I think here, Chris. Uh, I'm going to go, honestly, the relatability factor in my bias. And I'm going to move Nick of Time on, even though the Caesar and Me episode is very, wait for it, have a drink in hand, iconic. Uh, It's very iconic. I just think that the Nick of Time just has so much, uh, such great commentary on not only relationship relationship, uh, balance, but also like what addiction does to those surrounding you. Uh, I love that episode. I'm moving it on. Great take. And I think Nick of Time does a great job 
of balancing that human aspect with the cursed object because there are so many cursed object episodes in Twilight Zone. The Mystic Seer is a great one. Caesar is also one. But, I mean, if yeah. these are two cursed object episodes going up against one another, it's nick of time every time. Particularly because the Mystic Seer doesn't really become human in any way. It just performs its function. And right. you have the crazy Yeah, you have the crazy obsessed couple being like enslaved by it and then the old ladies drinking milkshakes that have no idea. Caesar like is walking around and casting shadows on the wall. He's talking to little girls. He's like a parasite going between or- owners. I don't know. It's a little bit hammy to me. I agree. I'm also advancing nick of time. Matthew, any thoughts on Caesar and me before it goes? Well, I got to mention, so that's, this is not the only ventriloquist episode. There's also an episode called The Dummy. The um, Dummy. And so that's, yeah, correct, The Dummy. And, um, I mean, I can't think of anything before the early 60s that depicted ventriloquism or dummies in this kind of scary way at least they were always creepy but no one did anything with it right and so i mean you look you know jump forward to like the 90s with the goosebumps books you got you know the dummy uh books there and yeah it's just it's 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 nice like iconography of just like horror genre um very early on and uh so i definitely appreciate it for that reason um plus like i don't know the little caesar i think it's like a it's an homage to like a mobster, you know, former mobster movie. But then you got this guy who's like an Irish immigrant. So I don't fully understand like the connection there, but I just, the, I don't know. He's trying to get him to do bad things and steal stuff. But uh, I think you guys made the right choice here. And Nick at Time's definitely a classic. Cool. Well, we go from one Shatner episode to the next. We've got <laughs> Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, the number four seed, versus number 13, Stopover in a Quiet Town. We'll start with Stopover in a Quiet Town. Kyle, you mentioned the drunk driving PSA. This is that. This is the drunk yep. driving PSA episode. This episode would have not gone down if Homeboy and Homegirl were just sober driving home from their upstate <laughs> party back yeah, to the city. They're taking an Uber. Right, exactly. I mean, cab, my friends. Uber upstate is a couple hundred bucks, but hey, <laughs> your life is worth more than that. All right. Um, this has a, a twist ending of sorts. It's kind of a slow burn because you realize that your two main characters are in this fake setting very early on. And it's just like, all right, where are they exactly? And so they spend probably 15 minutes just trying different ways to get out of the city. We as audience kind of know it's not going to work. They're trapped somewhere and we're just waiting for that reveal. So this is an episode where they handle suspense really well. I love that really, really long drawn out suspense. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And that's why Tower of Terror was a way better ride than Guardians of the Galaxy because Twilight Zone (laughs) is all about suspense. And there's no just like let's just shoot you up at the very beginning. And there's just no suspense of like when the ride's going to start. It's just, all right, you're just going. Sorry. I'll never get over that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. The characters kind of have an interesting relationship between the two of them. It kind of seems like the man might be an alcoholic a little bit and maybe slightly abusive as well. 
Yeah. <laughs> they kind of like make some subtle comments about that. A little bit awkward. It's going up against Nightmare at 20,000 feet. I mean, this is the face of the show right here. I mean, I cannot get on an airplane without thinking about Shatner or every other <laughs> spoof or version, Ace Ventura, whatever, looking out at the wing of an airplane and just imagining a little gremlin guy or you know someone pressing their face up against the window from the outside. It's just... I mean, it's incredible. Also, let's talk about all the ways that like air travel is different and depicted so <laughs> yeah. strange. Like it's so weird. Like the the woman just walks up and starts like knocking on the pilot's door. Nope, not today. Not post nine eleven. I'll tell you that. Your boy's smoking cigarettes. Mm-hmm. You got air marshals carrying handguns, just like sitting right there. Everyone's wearing suits. Everyone's wearing yeah. suits. Uh, they're walking on the tarmac to get onto the airplane. They're flying below the storm. <laughs> right. And it was a prop, I don't too. Think... It was a propeller. Yeah, it was a miniature. It, was. it yeah. wasn't a jet, even. Right. Uh, do airplanes fly at 20,000 feet anymore? Do they have to bump that no, up they... these days? So they fly at, like, about 30,000, and I international flights, I think, can go a little higher even than that. All right, so dated episode title here. One really underrated, maybe forgettable aspect of this episode is the music. And Twilight Zone has a lot of great, like, little musical themes, like, little, like, buzzy sound effects. But this episode has, like, really, really great sound design. It's got some score elements. It's got that airplane humming going on. Uh, and it's got a lot of, like, stingers on the strings when uh, the main character, Bob, add it to the list of iconic Disney Bobs. Um, <laughs> he sees the gremlin out on the airplane. It's like, King! so great, great sound design. I mean, there's just so much to talk about with this episode. I am very, very easily advancing nightmare at 20,000 feet past stopover in a quiet town. I, so there's connections to both of these episodes in the new twilight zone. New Twilight okay. Zone has an episode called Nightmare at 30,000 feet. So there you go. they readjust it to make it so that it's <laughs> current day. And it's the same kind of process. It's the same kind of story, except there's not somebody on the wing. It's like uh, it's Adam Scott uh, is the main character. And he's he thinks that he's in the know on a, a certain hijack situation. Oh, um, OK. And, that makes sense. and he's trying to let everybody else know because he listened to this thing. Watch it, it's great. Um, and then the stopover episode is also in the newest season of The Twilight Zone. Uh, it's So in the stopover episode, it turns out that they're not in a doom town, which is what it felt like to me. So doom towns were these nuclear test sites to figure out how materials and buildings and even clothing would react to like a nuclear bomb. Uh, and so they would set up these fake villages, these fake cities, fake towns with mannequins in them um, to try and reenact. And you see it in, uh, if you play like Call of Duty, there's a, a Call of Duty game that takes place during this era. There's Indiana Jones, the worst movie Stop, of, just the, don't talk of all about of them. It. Please he don't gets talk launched about it. out of an, uh, a refrigerator. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> um, so I, I thought... Uh, even in the first viewing years ago that this was they got drunk ended up in a doom town and just like like 
laid up in a in a model home, right? And it turns out to not be that. They're in this town that is a a, a alien child's playset that they've been captured from Earth, brought to this planet, and put into this town, and they're now her pets. In the new Twilight Zone, there's one where this uh, one of the Wayans brothers, <laughs> actually. What? No. He, yes. he, he lives in a small town and he ha- he lives in this church because his wife died and whatever. Who cares? But he lives. Uh, there's a model of the city to help lay out how the city was going to be built, the small town. And he's able to play kind of like this God figure and like make things happen. So it was kind of like a callback. The board looks very similar to yeah. Yeah. the town that these folks live in or that they're trapped in in the original one. Uh, I really liked that it turned into a PSA because they just weren't trying to hide it. You know, like they were like, listen, (laughs) we have an issue, guys. (laughs) And I'm glad that your Monday night has been filled with this entertaining episode, but also like stop drinking and driving, especially (laughs) if you're coming from the city to the burbs, like just take a train, do something. It just, it's not it. It's not it. Uh, Nightmare at 20,000 is... It's Twilight Zone, right? This is one, like, if I was recording in my living room, I have three posters, and one of them is Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Uh, This is, you said, it's been parodied a million times. It's one of those, like, I know something that no one else is being able to experience at this moment, one of those internal battles. Um, This man has just been released from a mental hospital from a mental breakdown and so he's already carrying the baggage of if he freaks out about this phenomenon that he's going to be seen as like just i'm just still crazy um and the gremlin has these powers that he can just like disappear and float and but also stay on the wing of this moving jet and i love it it's so cheesy twilight zone it's so good Chris, I think I'm with you. I'm going to move 20,000 on. It's one of those like experiences that we all can kind of connect to. It it, it connects to the, our fear of flight, that something would go wrong. And if we think that something would go wrong, no one else might believe us. It's kind of like when you hear that the, the plane needs to be repaired slightly before it can take off. So your flight's delayed and you look out the window and they're applying tape to like <laughs> some part of the plane. You're like, ah. Should we get on this plane? Uh, it's we all have that anxiety, so it really taps in and rings true today. So I'm moving it on, Matt. Uh, anything to say about stopover uh, in a quiet town? Um, you know, I you know, going back to the the nuclear town thing, I I completely when I rewatched this episode, I was I thought for sure that was where it was going before I remembered about the. Once I heard the kid laugh, I remembered that yes. there was a different, a different twist. But I don't, I, and I can't remember. I feel like there is an episode though that's that deals with that deals with that issue, um, and I can't for the life of me remember. But maybe it's just a holdover from you know other pop culture things that I've seen, and that just <laughs> makes sense because they had like a bunch of model stuff, and and it seemed like a fake town and everything. Cause like when else would you have a fake town? I don't know. Right. Um, 
I will. One other thing that we didn't mention about my neighbor at 20,000 feet that they don't do anymore. The flight attendants had like tranquilizer and like, remember it was like a pill or something. And they, they like gave it to him to like knock him out. It was like like Valium or something. Yeah. (laughs) And and that is, that is, that is benzodiazepines. And that is in the twilight zone movie version as well. In like the eighties. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, you can't, I think you guys definitely made the right choice there. Like w- once that, when that camera pans down at the end, after he got, gets in the ambulance and like, you see the damage to the aircraft and you're like, yeah. okay, they're going to find so out. Good. They're going to find out eventually. Like this guy was, you know, onto something there. So that, that, uh, that just, that redemption at the end just like pushes it over the top for me. Let's go ahead and talk about the last matchup of the left-hand side of the bracket is the number five, Eye of the Beholder versus number 12, A Stop at Willoughby. Uh, I'll start at the Stop at Willoughby. It's This one was one of those that we spent a lot of time sleeping. We spent a lot of time just like building up to, you know, the audience wanted to figure out what Willoughby was. So we have a very unhappy man who's very unhappy in his life. And he gets this taste of idealism to him, which is a small town in which folks seem content and happy. Seems like he went back in time, maybe into the 1800s or so. There's uh, a lot of barefooted people and horse buggies and all of the goodness that he sees when he falls asleep on a train coming back from work. Old timey uh, bank tellers with mustaches and armbands yeah. that know yeah. you by name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and and he just wants to find that place. It's not a stop on his train line. It's, he only sees it when he falls asleep. He's obviously in a really rough marriage that he's he sees no end to or or no getting better, and he feels desperate. Um, and so this this feels like, and I think that at the end you definitely find out that my dude commits suicide. Willoughby ends up being the name of the funeral home. Uh, he, When he gets off of the train at the stop at Willoughby, it's really him getting off the train as it's moving. Um, so it's that kind of nice, like, reward. Not nice. None of it's nice. <laughs> but it's, a, it's the, the episode uh, kind of redeeming the audience in like Willoughby was always a place. It just was an end. It was a funeral. Yeah. Home. Yeah. I loved that about yes. that episode. It was such a nice tie. I have the beholder is another one of those really famous twilight zone episodes because it deals with the idea of beauty. That's the whole thing. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And I think that within the first couple minutes of the episode, you know exactly what's how it's going to play out. Um, somebody's going in for like essentially plastic surgery in order to fit into society. Uh, and the doctors are, are encouraging her that this is for the betterment. And they deal with this thing of like, if it doesn't fix her, like that's all we could do, which was really extreme. You never see any of the doctors or the nurse staff or anybody's face. They're always in shadow, which kind of hints that something's weird. Are we on a different planet? Are we, you know, in an alternate reality? Which it turns out we kind of are. Uh, this There's this race of really, you know, 
unideal folks. They look like pigs, essentially, uh, wearing these these masks. I love a Twilight Zone mask where it's they all like supposed to be same. where it's supposed to be like realistic face molds, but it you can tell it's just like a mask, and it's really unsettling to look at. But that's also the point. Um, and we find out that she they they can't fix her. She's this like beautiful woman and they can't make her look like a pig like the rest of them um and it's that whole rod comes in and talks about how beauty's in the eye of the beholder and all that good stuff so it's it's a nice message i guess um that you don't need to try and conform there's beauty in everybody and and when you try to conform even when you do try it's never going to work out um in rod's mind and i i semi agree you you should, you know, lean into who you are as a human. I love a good Twilight Zone moral story. Um, I love a good, you know, iconic Twilight Zone. But I think that the feeling of just like, oh, the payoff was so good in a stop at Willoughby is what makes it move on for me past Eye of the Beholder. I agree that the payoff is great. I think that it makes this episode feel very realistic having Willoughby be like an actual thing. So many of these episodes are like left very open-ended where it's like, oh, was like, was the horror real or was it imagined? Like nobody knows. Stop, stop it, Willoughby. It's like, it is what it is. This is something that could happen in this world. Guy goes to sleep, dreams of a better place, dies. I really, really strongly relate to this guy, Gart, and stop it, Willoughby. <laughs> um, I live in New York City. There was one baseball season where a couple days after the Yankees were eliminated from postseason play, I rode the train to the end of the line, Roanoke, Virginia, 10-hour train ride, and it was like being in the happiest place in the entire world in that moment, just being like as far as I possibly could get away from the city. My cell phone didn't really work very well. Trees everywhere, super small town. No one really cares about anything, just how you doing. And so I was like, wow, like I, I feel this guy dreaming of this place Willoughby. Um, I, I, liked seeing the dynamic with his wife at first i thought it was kind of maybe like a sexist depiction of like the wife character because she's a little bit nagging and i guess like unsympathetic but i think the wife is just kind of a stand-in for just society as a whole it could be anyone who's pressuring you into doing something or being someone that you might not want to be um, so i love that this story has that like personal aspect where it's a character who is on his own like narrative path, but it also has a lot to say about society as well. I have the beholder. I mean, it's just like one giant societal commentary. There's just so many yeah. different threads hanging off of it that could start so many different conversations. You've got, like you said, the society that they're living in that is, um, and you get to see this like dictator guy come on this projector and start talking about conformity and vanity and all of this stuff. It's very like, I mean, it w I was like probably 15 years after World War II, but it still is kind of hanging on to those kind of like uh, post-war American ideas of individuality. Yeah. The actress who plays the revealed Miss Tyler 
is Ellie Mae Clampett from the Beverly Hillbillies, an actress named Donna (laughs) Douglas. And believe it or not, it's a different actress, Maxine Stewart, who does the voice of Miss Tyler underneath the bandages. (laughs) <laughs> which is interesting. I don't really know why they did it. I guess Maxine Stewart must have a great, like muffled, sad voice because uh, her delivery is so great. Like you can hear yes. the quality of her voice. Like it's, it really cuts deep. Um, yeah. It's very disturbing. Just like hearing the heartbreak in her voice. And uh, Kyle, I disagree with what you said about knowing exactly where this episode's going to go. It's easy for us to say we've seen it like many times, but I watched this one from Julia who does not watch the Twilight Zone. So she kind of represented like the the modern audience viewing uh-huh. an episode like this. And she was just like, she's going to be so scary looking. Like, is it scary? Like, it, like do I have to close my eyes? Is it going to be scary? And like okay. so much of the horror genre today is about like gross out. Like let's uh-huh. make the, the monster as grotesque as possible. So gory. It's so abject. And, um, she thought the episode was really stupid because <laughs> it was a beautiful woman. She felt like tricked. And, you know, the horror here isn't a monster. The monster is society. And, and that's the real horror. And something that is more horrible, in my opinion, than any monster that anyone could dream up. And because of that, I believe I of the Beholder should advance. So, Matt, you're breaking the tie here. You know, I so uh, so what you said about watching it with julia so i watched i watched it earlier today with uh my wife christine and she hasn't seen many episodes of the twilight zone and i think she was surprised too with the ending um but i like for the life of me i did not remember how much suspense was in that episode and just like it was stressful like, yeah. like, and, and, and I think, and I think the acting is, is really what like drove it home. I mean, the delivery it was just r- really strong. I felt like this is a really unique episode, you know, compared to most of the, um, you know, the episodes in the catalog, just, just from an acting, sheer acting standpoint, cinematography is beautiful as well. Yep. I mean, it's just, it, it, this kind of episode lends really well to black and white in my mind. Um, I do have a problem with their use of the, the term anesthetist. It, that is an antiquated uh, uh, medical <laughs> term, uh, although I think it may still be used in like Britain. That's not that's no longer the vernacular. Um, you know, stop at Willoughby. Uh, some of the Twilight Zone episodes for me, it, they have a little bit of issue with pacing. Um, and I, I didn't, I didn't rewatch this one, but I feel like I remember this one being a little bit on the slower end. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I have the beholder in my mind is, is just one of those that just really stands out to me as, uh, just a very well-crafted episode all around. So I'm, I'm going to have to advance. I have the beholder. All right. Well, that brings us to the other side of the bracket where we have the number two seed. The monsters are due on Maple Street versus number 15, an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Let's start with Owl Creek. This is maybe the most unique of Twilight Zone episodes in that it is not a Twilight Twilight Zone episode. (laughs) This is uh, an episode that starts with Rod Serling. He's like on set and he says, 
We're going to do something we've never done before on the Twilight Zone. We're going to show you the Cannes Film winner for Best Short Subject from 1962. This is an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. It went on to win the 1963 Academy Award for Best Live Action Short. And this is just totally unlike anything the Twilight Zone does, both in story and theme and in the way it's shot. Beautifully shot. I mean, incredible tracking shots through the trees at a couple points. Some underwater photography that is like, I'm sure at the time it was mind-blowing. I don't know what they rigged up to get these cameras underwater with this guy, but um, so great. Uh, There's a lot of really, really powerful close-ups. You've got like uh, leaves, dew on some leaves. You've got uh, the guy's unibrow. You've got his hairy nipple at one point that you just like, <laughs> he like washes, he washes up on the beach and he's like, ha ha, ha ha, he's like laughing. And like, all you can look at is like the nipple that's like right in the middle of the screen. <laughs> and I'm like, all right. Also, the dude goes down a straight up white water rapid, like, like a boss, and I want yeah. to be like, dude, that's so unrealistic. That would never happen. But he actually did it. Like he that does was it. Stunts. <laughs> Live stunts. He went down there. Like what? We watched this man potentially injure himself as he. I, he uh, was fine, man. He looked like he had no problem at all with it. Him um, going down the rapids, sassy going down the river, both just watching <laughs> these lives maybe in jeopardy. Ultimately, Owl Creek Bridge is kind of like a, a non-episode in that nothing really happens. It's just a guy gets hung on a bridge and has a little dream before, right before it happens. So there's really not a lot of horror for me at play, not a lot of science fiction for me at play. Doesn't really leave you thinking in the end. It's just kind of like, all right, that might have been a crazy twist if I didn't see it coming. Monsters are due on Maple Street, the number two seed. This is, oh man, this is textbook horror, textbook science fiction, textbook Twilight Zone. I was a film studies, film and media studies major at school, and we watched this episode in three different classes. Twice we did it to show like the definition of what the horror genre is, and once as like a depiction of 50s era consumer society and like the American dream. And Essentially, all horror is about a breakdown of values and some type of monster or something breaking down those values, and that is horrific. And it's really, really clearly seen in this episode. You have a very consumer-based society. People are got their lawnmowers, got their cars, watering the lawn, housewives cooking dinner, guy doing some home improvement in the driveway and all of the machines break and they can no longer participate in this picturesque 1950s era suburban society. And uh, yeah, once that's removed, all, all chaos breaks loose. Uh, I I think it comes back to the Aristotelian uh, definition of virtue, which is basically just a thing doing what it's supposed to do. And in this particular little town, or I guess this street, Maple Street, the virtue is people participating in consumer society. And I texted Matthew this a couple days ago. This is a perfect depiction of life in 2020. 
and the virus has upset the virtue of society and and is removed most things that we are able to do and we're able to do for so long and it's making us all freak out just like the people do on maple street they start pointing fingers they start looking for scapegoats all truths are relative that topic is explored with the relationship that the neighbors have between one another you've got uh steve who is kind of like the the guy who's leading everyone Charlie, who is kind of the jerk guy who wears like a Hawaiian shirt or whatever, <laughs> little Tommy, you know, and everyone starts to be like, all right, who's the alien? Who's the alien? And like everyone has little things that they could do that you could use as evidence to say, oh, this person's the alien. This is an episode that really explores this postmodern school of thought that is just kind of coming into popularity in the early 60s that true yeah truth is relative and it's all just like a power structure and you can make anything true if you provide the right evidence so monsters are due man there's just so much going on uh owl creek bridge is fun but it's just it's not the powerhouse episode monsters are due is so i am advancing the two seed monsters are due on maple street i'm almost positive that monsters are due is a short story before it was a twilight zone episode like rod hmm adapted it because I read the short story in sixth grade and then we watched this Twilight Zone episode. Um, So either it was adapted into a short story that was put into a textbook to talk about consumerism or it was a short story and it made into, it doesn't matter. It's a phenomenal story. Um, I think that it's interesting that the the consumerism uh, idea is, you know, what, we attach to it. I think it's also a lot of communism and there's some ideas behind like, especially in the forties and into the fifties, like there's this huge communist scare and uh, even in like Hollywood and, you know, we're connecting it back to Disney, like Walt Disney stood on trial about, you know, outing communists in Hollywood. Um, and it's one of those things like it could be anyone and we all like it, it, the communism looks like us, but it's just with bad intentions. And that's kind of what you get the feeling of in this episode. I won't dive into it anymore. We'll talk about it in the next round because I'm going to move it on as well. Matt, any issues with the monsters moving on to the next round? You know, occurrence at Elk Creek uh, Bridge is... Definitely, you guys, you know, mentioned it's it's one of the most unique episodes, and it's weird because I guess it's like a French, you know, short film, but the whole time I'm watching it, I feel like it's like it's almost shot like a spaghetti western, and the guy yes. in it too looks Italian, <laughs> and <laughs> it's it's just it like confuses me just to no end, and. and uh, just the way that it's filmed and that there's very little like dialogue, which is also like very on brand for spaghetti Western. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I think it's like just a dream sequence. I think it's, it's an appreciation for, for life. Um, you know, he, him, you know, noticing all these, um, you know, small things in nature. Um, there's this song, playing that's like I'm a living man or something like that um which I don't even know if that maybe that was written for the for the short film I, I'm not sure 
um, you know, and, and he's trying to find his wife or, you know, whoever, whoever that is that he's dreaming about. Um, so I think, I think there is kind of a discussion on mortality and just, you know, the value of life to, to, to be appreciated there. Um, and at first when I saw it, I didn't really see the ending coming. Um, but it was almost, it was almost a little bit like, uh, uh, inception, you know, when they're oh, like yeah, going, yeah. you know, yes. going, they're, they're like dropping and all this stuff is like going on and then like they hit the water or something. But, um, I mean, I thought it was really fun and, um, you know, I, I would definitely revisit that episode in the future, but you know, you guys are right on the money with monsters are due on Maple street. It's, uh, there's there is a lot going on there and it's it's very appropriate for the place and time totally let's move on to another kind of whodunit uh number seven will the real martian please stand up verse number 10 the bewitching pool we gotta trash bewitching pool for a little bit guys yeah let's go we gotta trash it for a little bit what a hot mess of an episode oh my gosh i uh so I had remembered how bad this episode was, or at least like how dysfunctional it was before I watched it. And I was like, maybe, you know, I was watching it out of a lens of pure entertainment and maybe there were some choices made that I just didn't understand. And I rewatched it. I was like, no, they just messed this whole thing up. There's, there's nothing about it. Uh, so I got really, really interested in what the hell happened with the bewitching pool. So I did a little research, and no, I can't uh, wait so, for this. so here's here's the issue. For those who haven't watched this episode, I recommend you do so you can feel the pain that we did. Uh, <laughs> there's these two kids that are children of a broken marriage, and they are able to escape the the trials and tribulations of suburbia by swimming down into their swimming pool, and they'll pop out into this idealistic 1800s like where we're like idealism is to be in the 1800s apparently it's and like a pleasure island pinocchio situation where like kids make the rules yes exactly and uh aunt t is the kind of watcher of all of these children who have escaped these issues and live in this dreamland that's very like tom sawyer-esque um so in this episode there's a little girl whose name is Sport and her brother whose name is Jed. Jed, yeah. Jed, Jed yeah. and Sport. Jed, Jed and Sport. Jeb. And Jeb. Jeb, 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 Jeb. Even better. It fits. <laughs> it just fits. Um, and you kind of realize the first scene that everyone's dubbed. No one's actually speaking the lines. Everyone. Yeah. Um, and so things are a little weird, and then they get to they swim through to Aunt T's house, and now they're all saying the lines except Sports' na- like voice is completely different. So I was like, "What happened here?" So there's a couple of theories. Um, one is that they dubbed the voice for all of those kind of like house scenes because uh, the soundstage there was a ton of background noise that drowned out everyone so they had everyone redo their lines but sport when she redid her lines apparently her 
southern accent was too thick that they no one could understand what she was saying so they brought in someone who was already on the lot and it was the voice of uh rocky from rocky and bullwinkle no oh, wow. so so when you listen to it it sounds like rocky is speaking through sport's mouth and it's, it's bizarre like a, it's that's, like a that's, cartoon that's, character that's totally mm-hmm. it yeah, that's totally it. Well, the other so, crazy thing is that the actress who plays Sport was Scout in To Kill a Mockingbird, Gregory yes, Peck. Yes, exactly. So and this so, isn't just like some kid actor who doesn't know what they're doing. Right, right. So uh, there, it could either be that her, her accent was too thick, that there was a lot of background noise. End of the day, they had to dub over, and it was jarring and awful. And it just made for the episode to be so less engaging than it could have been. Uh, it was this fantasy world thing that I wasn't even hooked into to begin with. So uh, almost by default, Chris, uh, I'm going to move. Uh, Will the real Martian please stand up? Mostly because I love the kind of whodunitness of that uh, and, and how the audience is also trying to figure out who the misfit of this scene is. A bus arrives to a diner. A phenomenon had just happened outside where it looked like a spaceship crashed into a bridge, knocked out the bridge. Uh, And so this diner pulls up with a busload of people, six, but apparently the bus driver doesn't realize that seven people are in the diner and he can't identify who the the misfit is, even though there's only six people on this bus. And you would think that you would at least recognize one of the six that came through, especially if two of them are coupled up, like, you know, process of elimination, my guy. Uh, but it was great, and all this weird Twilight Zone you know, weirdness happens with things turning on and off and the power going in and out. I loved it. It's way better than the Bewitching Pool, and I'll dive more into it if it moves on, but I'm moving on. Will the real Martians please stand up? So some things I wanted to point out about Bewitching Pool. Auntie, clearly drunk, clearly intoxicated, <laughs> whether that's how the actress is playing the character or the actual actress was on set S- word slurring galore she's like i always the temptation to keep kids here it's like <laughs> aunt <laughs> tea what kind of tea you've been sipping on hmm? seriously she's making a giant chocolate cake that's like comically large she hands out boxing gloves to sport and that other kid his name was like <laughs> wit or Billy or something. I don't know. The thing I I just didn't really understand what this episode was trying to say. Same. Like was it, was it a cautionary tale to parents to like make sure you love your kids or they might go live with Aunt T. Like tell them you love them. Or was it like did they kill themselves? Like is like is that did they die? Did they drown themselves and go to like Aunt T heaven? That's what I thought. Or is it just but a straightforward also, episode where they just? But ran also, away the dad goes down there and is like, "They're gone. I don't see them." So like, di- I don't know who. That yeah, episode. it's just weird, and it's unfortunate that this was the last ever aired episode of the Twilight Zone. So, could not go out on a high note. Went out on an anti note. I also am advancing Real Martian on, so we can talk about that next week. Matthew, any thoughts on Bewitching Pool before we move on? Yeah, I think they definitely had some sound issues there and that, you know, they had to dub it over. You know, the thing that the thing that 
kind of bothers me with this episode too is when they when they get to Aunt T's, she's always like she's always kind of suggesting like some like chores, like the kids are gonna have to do some chores, and it's almost like there's like a little insinuation that like maybe it's not a safe place for those kids to be yeah, or like yeah yeah you yes. know like or it's like a hansel and they're Gretel, also like repairing like they're repairing like kids shoes like yeah all of the kids shoes have like holes in them right right so know. i'm always like every time i watch it i'm like wait is something like auntie is she something doing something to these kids or you know and i always want the episode to go there uh, like a Hansel and Gretel <laughs> thing, but it and it, it never pans out. And I'm like, okay, Aunt T is just like, you know, she's just cool. She's just the cool aunt. Uh, she's a drunk old lady. It's okay. Yeah, she's the she's the fun aunt. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think I think you guys are advancing the right one on here. If if for the only reason of the tremendous skill that it took for the actor behind the martian to somehow navigate that cigarette into the actor's mouth <laughs> completely blind uh yes. which was unbelievable phenomenal phenomenal all right let's move on to the next matchup then it's number three time enough at last versus number 14 penny for your thoughts so first of all just random observation I used to get Penny for Your Thoughts and Nick of Time confused all the time <laughs> because he doesn't throw a penny in the thing. He throws a quarter in it. And in Nick of Time, they don't put a nickel in the thing. They put a they penny put in penny. it. So, yeah. right. And he's like, deal, like thoughts are come. I don't know. It was just a weird, weird little thing. Um, anyways, this is another Dick York episode. <laughs> Conceptually, I think, Penny for Your Thoughts is a is a memorable episode because all of us at some point in our lives think to ourselves, wouldn't it be great to read other people's minds? We wouldn't ever have to guess what someone's thinking. We would know exactly what they were thinking. And this episode really twists that idea to say, you think it would be such a blessing to know, but it would be this terrible curse because not so sure you want to know what's going on in everyone's head all the time. However, I laughed out loud when he walks over to the woman who has like the big stack of money and there's just like silence. He like <laughs> yes. leans over to her and is like, just nothing, <laughs> just, just looking at money. Um, so it's kind of surface level in that way, but it also I think is a really strong exploration into like the difference between the thoughts in your head and the things that a person actually does just because you think it, does that mean that that's the person you are like this, this little, little bank teller accountant guy daydreamed of robbing the bank. Does that make him a bank robber or like a wannabe criminal or a bad guy? Or like, did it just go through his head? Um, I think that's really, really interesting, really yeah. interesting. Um, I mean, you could take it, a lot further and talk about some larger issues with like, you know, identity and mental illnesses and stuff like that as it relates to like how people respond to their own thoughts and things like that. But, uh, that's just way, way out of my coverage zone. So we won't do that time enough at last iconic. Where's my beer? <laughs> Cheers. 
also uh, a tragic episode. Uh, this yeah. is this is another kind of one of those like fantasy versus reality dilemmas. Uh, do you really want your fantasy to come true? Right. Uh, in this episode, Henry Bemis, uh, you know, his dream is to read all the time. What if you get that? What's the cost that's associated with that? I'm not really sure. I buy the addiction. The I yeah. I can't. I just can't stop reading addiction. Like he's he's in his boss's office at one point, and there's like a newspaper, and he like he like can't help but read the newspaper. That I I don't I don't know if that's realistic, but I that might just be a stand-in for like a he's addicted to escapism. Like he's just not in touch with reality. He refuses to live in the moment, which is a theme that I think exists today. You could make the argument if you were if you were going to make this episode today, maybe Jordan Peele already did. I don't know. Uh, it would be like social media. Like I wish I had time to like, go on social media. And if everybody died and you finally had time, there would be no social media to go through because everyone's dead. No one's posting. Right. Uh, Jordan Peele, I hope you're addiction. listening. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah. Um, so screen addiction, I get it. Reading the newspaper addiction, I don't get it. Henry Bemis's survival strategy is a little bit weird to me. Like he just walks out of a nuclear explosion and he's like, where do I go? Like you would, you would think that the first place he would go is like, all right, let me build a fire. Let me find some food, find some water, the place to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and, and he also starts eating the canned food right away. Like yes. eat, the, eat the vegetables like or like the bread or something. <laughs> idiot. Total idiot. <laughs> Something that I really want to know, and I could not piece together the footage, the couch that he sleeps on, is that his own couch? Like, does he walk to his own home, like the rubble of his own home, and sleep sure. in his own house? Or did he just, like, find a couch? Yeah. Because I'm trying to think, like, what I what I would do if I woke up in New York City and it was completely leveled. Like, would I, like, chill on the Upper West Side where I live? Or, like, would I try and go over to like park Avenue and like find some dope like building or something. that doesn't belong to me. I feel like Henry Bemis is the type of guy that would just go, go find his own bed, like sleep in the one that, that is his totally don't get how he didn't notice the car that was parked right next to the couch that he had been sleeping <laughs> next to all night long. He like woke up and he was like, Whoa, there's a car here. It's like, dude, it was right there. Um, ultimately there is some really, really great themes presented in this episode. Um, I don't know if it's my favorite, but I like it more than Penny for Your Thoughts, so I'm advancing time enough at last. Yeah, when I was talking about wall art, the three episodes that I have in this kind of minimalist style in my living room is To Serve Man, uh, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, and... Time enough at last. And... You know, it's one of those themes. I don't, I don't know if it's an escapism. While that is at play, I feel like the the lesson of the story is a lot of selfishness. You know, he's being asked of other things, and you know, his job demands duties as jobs do, and you know, his wife wants the attention that she deserves, and you know, he just wants to go home and read. Uh, instead of pay attention to what she needs and wants. And 
there's a little bit of some revenge stuff that goes on in that scene where she like takes his book and scribbles out everything. And that's a little painful because you kind of just want Bemis to live his best life. But at the same time, this has obviously been an issue and and maybe he deserved it. Uh, I agree with all of your takes about like how did why did he make these dumb decisions uh, when he woke up as essentially the last man on Earth? Uh, I I like the ending in which he doesn't get what he wants, you know, putting yourself before all others or only focusing on yourself uh, is, is, you know, not as admirable. It's you, I feel like uh, selfless people win at the end and he is very selfish and that's a a nice story to tell. Um, Penny for your thoughts is, like I said, it's a very similar one to what Dick York did in the other episode, uh, The Purple Testament, where he knows something that nobody else does and he has to try and convince people and he ends up being wrong at one point because, as you said, all of our thoughts aren't what we either one believe or two would actually enact. It's kind of just we're going through this therapy of thought kind of sensation where, oh, man, if if only I could just steal that money and go to Bermuda. Like um, him grabbing the people on the street and just like staring at them or like listening in, I immediately thought of you in New York and being like, yo, I want Chris to just like walk up to some businessman walking down the street, grab him and just see what happens. Is that businessman also going to just stop and like stare at you like they did? Or is Chris getting punched in the face? I would be the businessman in that situation. (laughs) I would be the one who gets grabbed and someone's staring at me and I'd be like, Okay. <laughs> yeah, at the end of the day, I think that uh, Time Enough at Last is just too much of this uh, powerhouse of a storyline and, and who your battle as an audience to either sympathize with Bemis or be against what he's all about. And then to see the pure disappointment at the end, like being left with like, what does Bemis do now? Like one, he can't read, but two, he like Loki can't see now, right? It's not even that he can't read these books. He was very dependent on his glasses. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that they broke, like, he's kind of just doomed. Uh, so the selfish never win. I really like that moral. I'm moving that one on. Matt, any thoughts? Yeah, you know, Penny for your thoughts is really interesting. Um, although <clears throat> I feel like his the main character's reaction to getting this gift is very strange to me. It's like immediately he despises having the ability to read people's minds, but like so much good stuff like was happening to him because of it. But he like (laughs) was like tortured, tortured by it. He was like really freaked out and he didn't want it. And I'm like, you know, that's, that's really powerful, you know? Um, and I guess in the end, it didn't really pay off because then he falsely accused the, the guy of, of, of stealing from the bank and then he looked kind of stupid. Um, but yeah, I mean, time enough at last is definitely, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's one of the top seeds for a reason. So that, I think you guys made the right choice. Let's wrap up this episode with our final matchup. It is the number six living doll versus number 11, the masks. Starting with Living Doll, uh, I had hinted at this at the beginning, uh, Gab and Gabby in Toy Story 4, very obviously kind of portrayed here uh, or, or was inspired by Talking Tina in this one. Talking Tina is a doll that this uh, young girl has, and 
she lives in this household that is another broken marriage. Uh, the mother and father consistently fighting. The father is not in tune with the needs of his wife or a child and seems like he has a lot of anger issues. So talking Tina uh, targets dad and is ready to kill dad. And you're like, how is this talking doll going to act in the threats of, hi, my name is talking Tina and I hate you and and I'm going to kill you. How is this doll going to do it? And at the end, it's kind of the dad's own demise, right? He's so obsessive over this doll that he ends up tripping essentially over it down the stairs, dies by falling down the stairs in a very dramatic, like obviously built set way where the staircase handrail bends extremely to the side and he goes crumbling down to the bottom. Honestly, this was one of, uh, Matt, you brought up issues with pacing in Twilight Zone episodes. This is one that I had an issue with pacing. Uh, I felt like we got it. We got it. Dad yeah. sucks. Uh, the doll is probably evil. And, you know, there was just so much of him trying to be like convince the others that this doll is targeting him and it's just like, they're not going to believe you. We know they're not going to believe you. Let's get to the part where something goes wrong. Felt very drawn out and I honestly lost a ton of interest. And I like the fact that I felt like I was watching this for the very first time when I definitely have seen it many times before just kind of lends its hand to the fact that I just don't really enjoy this episode. It's up against uh, the masks which I really like because I love like the storyline was just so pure and you just knew that like grandpa was out here getting revenge. You didn't know how, but you can feel the spite in him. This was like grandpa's about to die. We got an old guy about to die. He brings his family to his house in New Orleans and for essentially his last moments or his last days, he's going to see his family. But grandpa is just here to roast Grandpa is just going to like <laughs> let you know what's wrong with each and every one of you. And I loved it. This dude so died much. a savage. Oh, man. So his son, who's obviously like money obsessed, he says, I think if someone cut you open, they'd find a cash register. Boom. Boom roasted. roasted. <laughs> Moves over to the granddaughter who's putting up makeup. Seems a little self-centered. All you've seen is your mirror image this entire time. Boom, got him, move on. Wilfred Jr., the grandson, who is for sure a serial, serial killer right now. Grandpa exposes him as a torturer of animals. And you're just like, okay, well, he deserved that one, right? Grandpa just called him out on his truth. Uh, it's not much of a roast. He's just exposing that this grandson's going to kill people in the near future. Uh Grandpa essentially gives them masks that's supposed to represent the opposite of what they are. So the money obsessed is actually not selfish at all and is really caring. So he gives him a mask that embodies selfishness. Uh, and he's supposed to, they're all supposed to be who they aren't. Uh, and it goes for each one that we just named, including his own daughter. Turns out when this clock strikes midnight, uh, they're going to embody these masks and forever have these ugly faces that are very reminiscent of eye of the beholder masks uh the one that grandpa wears is a skull uh and uh, he dies because he's old and was sick and we knew he was going to anyways i love this revenge episode a lot uh it was just such a solid storyline that didn't deal with you know you didn't need magic necessarily deals kind of with like voodoo 
they get a little racy in there and I'm not too fond of them talking about like Cajuns and like black magic and stuff, but period piece, we'll go ahead and say that it's, it's a, a episode of its time. Um, I like it. I'm moving this one on Chris into the next round. The living doll, I think for a couple of scenes, if you put a laugh track on it, it would feel like a sitcom, <laughs> especially the scene where he's trying to destroy the doll and it's like messing with him. Yes. Like if you just put like a little ha 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 ha, like it would be a comedy. <laughs> it reminds me of the Seinfeld episode when George has the doll that looks like his mom and it's like <laughs> talking to him and like there's a laugh track. He falls down the stairs like it's a banana peel. It yes. just it's really really goofy to me, um, and it's not a psychological horror like Caesar and me. You could be like, oh, this is this is a psychological thing. Might not be actually alive. Might be a man plunging into insanity. But like we see the doll being indestructible, and we see her talking to the wife as well. Like this is just a goofy doll killer doll just like you know it feels beneath the twilight zone kind of so i agree masks super enjoyable watch matthew any final thoughts on uh talking tina well i mean i think as soon as kyle said the masks i knew that was gonna move on because i know that's one of your favorites um living doll is it's an interesting episode too, because I feel like we're watching it and we know what the doll is going to say, which is like, I'm going to kill you like that. And it's completely, and like for, 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 I think probably when they watched this in the sixties and the early sixties, they were probably like, what? That's crazy. But like, you know, now we have like, you know, child's play movie. And I mean, it just catapulted toys as being this scary potentially murderous object. And so it's not hard for our brains to make that leap. Um, I, I will say, you know, the, the dad at Telly Savalas, he was a big, um, big time actor um, in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he was perfectly cast in that role. Also uh, one of the special features on that, um, that box set I had, it had a, uh, a, a, a um, commentary this is how many episodes I've watched. I watched the commentary for the living doll and it was the talking, <laughs> the talking Tina voice. It was like this lady and she was probably like in her thirties when she voiced talking Tina. And so she was like real old when she recorded this, uh, <laughs> this commentary. And like the whole time she was just like, you know, I don't know. She wasn't even like, she wasn't even like on set. She was just like the voice and she was, it was just kind of comical, but um, it was fun. <laughs> And so, anyway, that's just a little trivia tidbit. But I, I like Living Doll, um, but Mask is uh, Mask is great. Well, folks, that does it for our first round of Best Twilight Zone episode. Next week, we'll get into our Elite Eight matchups, where we have a lot of top seeds moving on here. We've got number one to serve man versus number eight, Nick of Time. Number four, Nightmare at 20,000 feet versus number five, Eye of the Beholder. Number two, Monsters Are Due on Maple Street versus number seven, Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? And the number three, Time Enough at Last versus number 11, The Masks. Matt, thank you so much for joining us this week. We hope you had fun. Oh, I had a great time. Can't wait for the next one. 
All right, everybody, you know how to reach us. You can send us an email at mousemadnesspodcast at gmail.com. Send us a tweet at mousemadnesspod. Join our Facebook group or our Discord server, which are both linked in the description of the podcast. Let us know if you've got any problems with these, got any Twilight Zone takes, and let us know if you like this non-Disney content. You know, we consider kind of uh, going into some other tangentially Disney stuff. Let us know if you hate it. Let us know if you love it. Until next time, we'll catch you in the Twilight Zone.